Greetings and welcome to Resistance Recovery. Resistance Recovery is dedicated to the exploration of any and all topics related to recovery, spirituality, and culture. Join us as we interview thought leaders working at the edges of cultural transformation. My name is Piers Kanuka, and I'll be your host. Hi, everybody. Um, much anticipated discussion with Robert Whitaker, who is an author, uh, most notably of Anatomy of an Epidemic. But he is also, I would say, a global leader in the uh, mental health and social justice movement. So he has a lot to say to us. Um, I'm not going to, I told him already, I'm not going to bore him with the, the boilerplate Robert Whitaker tale. But I think I'd like to start, Robert, is how did we get to a place where um, big pharma and pharmaceuticals came to dominate the mental health system? Yeah, sure. First of all, Piers, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me. You know, it, it's just a capitalistic story, basically, is what happens. But what really set the groundwork for it, though, was the American Psychiatric Association in 1980 when it published the third edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it said it's gonna reconceptualize mental health problems, psychological problems as diseases of the brain. Now, before that, if you go into DSM-1 and DSM-2, the first two editions of their Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, there were some things said to be biological in kind, but there was also a lot of sense that, you know, there was Freudian impulses, Neurosis is sort of normal. Anxiety is a normal thing. And these are psychological problems, et cetera. But what they decided to do, the association in 1980, was to make a big shift. And we're going to conceptualize these problems as diseases. Now, there was no uh, scientific finding that said, oh, anxiety is a biological disease or depression is a biological disease. And it doesn't matter what's happening to you, right? American psychiatry did this because it was a way in the 70s, there was a lot of uh, questions about the legitimacy of uh, American uh, psychiatry as a medical discipline. Psychiatry was in competition with psychologists and social workers and counselors for patients, etc. And so they understood, the association understood that by reconceptualizing these things as diseases, they moved to the top of the heap. Because if you have diseases, it's the medical professionals, it's the doctors who have authority over that domain. So when they make this change, and by the way, when they make this change, when you have medical diseases, what becomes a, a, a usual primary form of treatment? It's drugs, of course, right? There's a, that's why we go to doctors half the time is to get a prescription. Well, the minute that the American Psychiatric Association did this, the pharmaceutical industry started jumping up and down for joy. Why? Well, because now we were going to start taking all these, you know, we're going to take things like unhappiness, grief, uh, misbehaving kids, uh, that sort of thing. And we're going to not start defining whatever's happening with them, uh, emotions and all that we used to understand were just sort of things that happen to human beings as diseases. And the minute they did that, the drug companies could get drugs passed for, you know, approved for that disease. So for example, you're going through a divorce, you're unhappy, 
there, there's no di diagnosis for unhappiness. You can't have a pill for unhappiness, but you can have a pill for depression as a disease. So really that's what happened. It's very simple is the American Psychiatric Association reconceptualized the struggles we have as human beings and uh, which basically happened to everyone at some time in their lives, right? Sure. But anyway, they, they decided we're gonna call these diseases. As soon as they do, you open up uh, a market for drugs. And now today, you know, we have about 20% of our adult population on psychiatric medications. And, you know, some uh, colleges report that somewhere between 25 and 30% of their entering freshmen have diagnoses and prescriptions, which, just shows you if you just look at this as a marketing, a capitalistic story, it's a story of an industry that built a market for its products. Yeah. So that's really what happened. And along the way, of course, pharmaceutical companies began giving a lot of money to the American Psychiatric Association to <clears throat> promote its disease model. They began paying academic psychiatrists to be their speakers, advisors, consultants. And so with that money flow and those joint interests between the guild interests of the American Psychiatric Association and the you know, commercial interests of the drug companies, we got told the story about chemical imbalances that were, and drugs that fix those chemical imbalances, which is a great story of biological pro, uh, progress. It's, a, it's not true, but it was a great, great way to market drugs. And we heard how safe and effective the drugs were. And so that's what's happening. What's what happened? You really, you got to see this as a capitalism, a story about uh, a capitalistic success in essence. Mm -hmm. You had an industry that built an ever expanding market for its products and it's done so with uh, great success. And it used, pro it used marketing claims wrapped in the gauze of science to, right. to, to do this. So when we first started hearing chemical imbalance, especially around depression. What was that with the advent of Prozac? Did that go directly with the marketing of Prozac? Yeah, that, well, first of all, the first time we began really hearing chemical imbalances at all was in the earlier, 1984, 90, there was a famous book by um, Nancy Andreasen called The Broken Brain. And in there she, and that's in like 1984, introduces this idea of chemical imbalances, but it's when Prozac, comes to market in 1988, that this becomes the way to market the drug. It fixes a chemical imbalance. And that of course proved to be an extraordinarily successful market, uh, you know, branding of the drug. And the industry and even the academy has backed off of that claim. And yet it's still happening in consulting offices and it's still something of an urban legend. Was that a safe way to- <laughs> Well, yeah, here's some amazing. <laughs> This is such a betrayal. So if we really trace the chemical imbalance story back to its roots, its roots go back to the 1960s when researchers began to understand how these new psychiatric drugs acted on the brain. So they understood that antipsychotics blocked dopamine transmission, thwarted it. So they hypothesized, well, maybe schizophrenia and psychotic disorders are due to too much dopamine. And then to go forward with the antidepressants, uh, they blocked, I mean, excuse me, they up serotonergic activity. So researchers hypothesized, well, maybe depression is due to too little serotonin. 
So the hypothesis is born not from understanding what's going on in the brains of people so diagnosed, but from an understanding how, how the drugs act on the brain because they perturb a normal function. And then hypothesizing the disorder has the opposite pathology. So now with that hypothesis, they have to investigate, do people with depression have low serotonin before they go on the drugs? Do people diagnosed with a psychotic disorder have too much dopamine activity? Now listen to this. That, that, that story began to fall apart in, in the, the minute it began to be investigated in the late 70s. And as early as 1984, the National Institute of Mental Health, our leading research organization in the United States for psychiatric disorders, mental health disorders, conducts a big study to see if people with depression have low serotonin. And what did they find? They didn't find it to be so, okay? That's 1984, that's four years before Prozac comes to market. Anyway, once the SSRIs come to market, there's a lot more research on this. They investigate it from many, many different ways. And then in 1998, the American Psychiatric Association's own textbook says, we investigated this, we tried all this this ways, and there's no evidence that low serotonin is, is a cause of depression that depressed people have low serotonin. The mono, they call it the monoamine theory of, of, of mood disorders, is dead, they say. And they even say in their own textbook, this was always sort of a stupid hypothesis because there's no reason that the pathology of a disorder should be the opposite of what the drugs you're using to treat it do. That's 1998. They declare it dead in their own textbook. What does the American Psychiatric Association continue to do after that? market the chemical imbalance story. You saw it on their website. They even send, they, 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 they published, the president's published articles in magazines saying, we now know that depression is caused by low serotonin. In fact, they even uh, did a public education campaign, a PR campaign, I think it was in 2007, to convince the American public that psychiatrists were ex experts in fixing chemical imbalances in the brain. So, now you do have the experts completely moving back from that publicly because it's, it's been so discredited. The hypothesis has fallen so, so far apart. I mean, you have Tom Insel, the former head of the NIMH saying many years ago, yeah, that, that, that hypothesis didn't pan out. That's old school. And then we have Ronald Pies, I think, and he was the former editor-in-chief of Psychiatric Times, which is a trade journal. He says in 2011 or 12, I, quite, I can't quite remember when, he says, the notion of chemical imbalances is a kind of urban myth, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. Now, in a way he's right, because if you really look at it among themselves, they were always basically saying this is a theory. And then you have these regular findings that the theory is not panning out. By the way, in 1992, I think it was, John Kane, who was a big uh, researcher, still is a well-known researcher in schizophrenia. He writes, the dopamine hyperactivity theory of schizophrenia is no longer credible. That's 1992. So in research circles, they did know this. But clearly the, the guild, the American Psychiatric Association as a guild told a very different story. Mm -hmm. 
right. psychiatrists as a profession told a very different story. And even psychiatric residents sometimes were sort of schooled in this nonsense. And of course, so were non-medical people, yeah. counselors, psychologists. They got this story too. And it just spread, spread throughout the United States, spread throughout the world, actually, <laughs> because it became a means to, to market drugs around the globe, especially in developed countries. I mean, I've traveled quite a bit. This is what this is the common wisdom. So why does it, uh, why are we still hearing it? Because there's no propaganda machine really devoted to knocking it down. So yeah, Mad in America, the website I run, we have all sorts of articles knocking it down and blah, blah, blah. But there's just no money in knocking it down. And, and, and the American Psychiatric Association doesn't want to go out and say, yeah, we lied to you for 30 years, right? right? So what happens is it's a myth that just continues to get peddled and it's, um, it's false and it's a betrayal of everybody who's told that those patients are being betrayed because if you believe it, well, then you say, I do have something wrong with my brain. I do need to take this drug and I need to take it forever because I have this abnormality. So it's literally giving people a fraudulent understanding of themselves. I guess my real question then is why hasn't there been pushback on a legal front? Have well, there been settlements that never get any publicity, that sort of thing? Or I don't understand this. I wish I had a... You would think I've had many lawyers write me and say, we should do a, a lawsuit, you know, a class <laughs> action lawsuit <laughs> on this very question about, um, you know, basically fraud within psychiatry with people who got it being told they had chemical imbalances being given a fraudulent diagnosis. And I, I don't know why it can't be successful, but basically what they say is, that you know, you'll get experts to say it was a hypothesis and that's how it was really presented. And I guess there's just enough sort of belief that it might be have been possible. Yeah. That it, that it somehow isn't seen as rising to the level of fraud, but honestly, I don't understand why it wouldn't. I mean- Especially after you have their own textbook saying, Right. The theory is dead in 1998. It would seem that ever after that, uh, it would be a, be a fraudulent thing to tell patients. I mean, one thing I can speak to as being somebody in the trenches is there is an enormous taboo even about talking about this. And if you do talk about it, you have to couch things in such a way that you're defending client choice and... Um, Maybe there is some symptom alleviation. You know, there's a, there's a pervasive fear that if you challenge this hypothesis and you're a social worker or a counselor, it could cost you your job. There's also a fear of people uh, hearing even Robert Whitaker and coming off their meds abruptly, having the bad, you know, rebound effect, whatever you want to call it, withdrawal syndrome. And, you know, so I see that. 
But it seems to me that the magnitude of the problem is still so great. And your research shows too, or research you look at, that people that are on certain medications for decades, there's a para- corresponding uh, shortening of life expectancy. Is that not right? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, divide what you just said into two. <laughs> <laughs> right. this, this is sort of, uh, you hear this all, all the time that if you challenge whatever the conventional story that's been told as a professional, uh, you can get booted. Yeah. Out of, especially if you're in a larger you know, provider system, because it's almost like the provider system has to adhere to whatever the conventional wisdom is or they'll be challenged as with malpractice or something. And, and one of the reasons I think that they can't tolerate someone saying, but this isn't true, like the chemical imbalances, is because they actually can't show that it is true. In other words, it, let's say it were, it were in fact uh, uh, true that uh, th- these drugs fix chemical imbalances and people had it. And then you all of a sudden are telling people Oh, no, that's all nonsense. Well, they could go to you then and say, here's the research that shows you're wrong. And can we can you please get in, 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 in you know, in kind and in, in concert with the real research? But they can't do that because they can't point to that. I've got to turn this off. Sorry. Um, sorry. Someone is desperate to get a hold of me. Um, but they can't do that. Be- and since they can't do it, they, they end up defensive and they have to say, we just can't go down that path. It's a, it's a type of fear in essence, because if we go down this path, next thing you know, we'll be breaking with everything that people have been told and it'll just blow up what we've been doing. And the other problem is if you have an organization that really has organized itself around that, right, that conception, it's hard then to now all of a sudden say like, were we uh, wrong all this time? Yeah. Uh, that become you know, all of a sudden, did we mislead our patients? Yeah. So, uh, you know, that becomes a, a, a real problem too. So, sorry. Someone has just called me like 50 times. You can cut this out, right? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. So anyway, that's the problem there because it's like self-preservation, et cetera. So that's that first part. Like we don't have honesty between therapist and professional and patient because the whole sort of system got organized around a false narrative. And once you organize around a false narrative, you're in a really vulnerable spot. You have to say like, okay, we told you a problem. And you and because it's a false narrative, you can't really have your own members saying that's false because it becomes like a really disjointed, um, well, it, it becomes threatening is the point to what you're doing and what you are sort of gonna be doing in the future. Now around this idea of drugs, the research on the long-term effects of these drugs does tell of, on the whole, harm done. It tells of people having more physical problems, more chronic symptoms, often more psychiatric symptoms. 
impairments in their physical health. And all that does get translated into, you know, shorter lifespans, particularly with the antipsychotics. But it's not just the antipsychotics. And then you want to ask, well, why might that be? And this goes back again to, to what this whole fraud or this whole false narrative. The truth is we don't know the, any sort of abnormality that is present with any of these different diagnoses. But what then the drugs do is they perturb normal functioning in the brain. So let's just work with SSRIs, um, antidepressants. What do they do? Well, normally serotonin goes into that gap between neurons, that's that chemical messenger, stays there for just a bit, fraction of a moment, binds with receptors on the receiving neuron, and then it goes back up into the presynaptic neuron stored for later reuse. That's how it works. So what does an SSRI antidepressant do? It blocks that normal reuptake. Serotonin now stays in the gap longer than normal. You're perturbing how the brain was really fashioned by evolution to function, right. okay? And now your brain being this incredibly neuroplastic organ, a signal goes out and says, a feedback loop goes, oh, so I got too much serotonin in my synaptic cleft. I'm, I'm at too high of an activity. So what it does is it tries to dial down its own serotonergic machinery. The presynaptic neurons put out less serotonin than normal and the postsynaptic neurons, those are the neurons that receive the message, they decrease their density of receptors for this molecule. And you can see why. The, the drug is acting as an accelerator on serotonergic transmission. The brain, uh, puts down, the, <laughs> the brain puts down the brain. So A, this is why it's so problematic to come off. First of all, you've got this new sort of uh, one foot on the accelerator, one foot on the brake. Now you take away the drug and what do you got left? You don't have a normal system. You have a system that's operating in a dysregulated serotonergic state. But also here's the problem. Do you really think that daily use of a drug that perturbs normal functioning is going to lead to improved functioning over five years? Is it gonna to lead to improved psychological functioning, physical functioning? Because these things are also integrated, right? How your gut works and everything works. Yeah. And, 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 and basically, if you said to someone, go ahead and take a compound that will perturb your normal function, take it every day for 10 years, how many people would say like, oh, I think that'll, be, that'll help me live a good life? Yeah. That's the, pro so that's, that's, but you can't, that it, you're, you're not even really allowed to tell your, your patients that, right? Or the people, you, your clients that. Because you're still, at least larger provider organizations are working with this in this sort of framework where the false narrative still exists. Drugs have a beneficial, safe, and effective thing. And if you start warning them against them, you start telling them these harms. And then what happens? They go off. They suffer withdrawal effects. Maybe something bad happens, and who's at who's who's to blame? You're to blame. Right, right. Well, I have a lot of clients who report frequently, or people I know in the recovery world, that they will go to their providers with the idea of coming off of something, valid concerns, and they are strongly, almost often, aggressively discouraged from doing that. Treated with a certain condescension really um so they're caught in this dilemma that if they're going to come off they either have to go to an alternative provider who's out of network 
or they just have to wing it themselves. And we're see, I see a lot of that. You know, uh, I know you see a lot of it because we, you know, I run this website, madamerica.com, and people write about it all the time. Oh, I wanted to come off. I couldn't get any help. And they discouraged me. It was almost seen that something was wrong with me, that I wanted to come off. And they have to do it themselves. And that that's its own peril. Well, you know, there's two things to say about that. One is, again, it's, it's a betrayal of patience from a big picture point of view, because if you're going to be responsible for putting people on the medications, you should develop a way to help them get off the medications, right? That should be the, the other half of that compact. But we have a system that was pretty quick to put people on and then never learned about withdrawal effects or support people for coming off. And basically, you know, people prescribe these drugs ended up having to like gather together on the internet and forums and sort of talk to each other about what sort of symptoms to expect and how best to do it. So first of all, it's a betrayal of a basic uh, medicine, you know, medical function. If you're going to put people on, you should have a way to get people off and help them. Um, I was going to say something else, <laughs> but that's the biggest thing. It's, it's such a, it's such a betrayal. Uh, oh, I, I was just going to say one other thing. Sorry about this. It's a betrayal because that's a betrayal because of the responsibility. You're gonna to have to do a lot of editing here. <laughs> All right. Anyway, the second part of this is, is, is this. What is the cornerstone of good medicine? It's listening to the individual patient, right? Because people have different responses to drugs. Mm -hmm. And in any corner of medicine, historically, a good thing is to listen to the person being treated. Is the treatment working? Is it doing what you want it to do? And if it's not, maybe we should do something different. So if a person comes to a doctor or a therapist or whatever and says, I want to come off, they should ask why. And if they ask, say, well, you know, actually I'm feeling worse, I'm getting more depressed, I'm lethargic, I, you know, then they should listen to that and say, oh, okay, that makes sense. It's not doing what the person wants. So it's twofold when we get into this thing about not helping people taper off. One, it's a failure of, of the medical profession to not have developed methods to help people come off over all these years. And second of all, it's a, it's a failure of individual doctor or therapist, client, uh, you know, relationship not to listen to the person you're trying to help. Well, that leads to my next question, the, the issue of chronicity, that conditions that in earlier times were relatively fleeting now become permanent worsening conditions. And we're seeing this a lot, right? And one way to measure this is the huge uptake in uh, the um, disability roles. Right. So we have all these people, if these things were had such great efficacy, then why do the mental health disability roles keep going up? Yeah, I mean, it, it, writ large, this is the harm, you know, a big picture of the harm that's being done. So if, if you go back, say, in the 1970s, early 1980s, and ask people about depression, they'd say, oh, it's something that passes. It's an episode. I'm going to have an episode of difficulty. 
anxiety was known to wax and wane and be, you know, common to certain situations. Uh, even psychotic disorders were often understood to be episodic in kind and not permanent, yeah. and that they would pass with time. And so the, the question was, how do you get through those difficult times? Uh, you know, that's when you enter a period of depression, how do you get through it? And maybe you can get some, some care and treatment that helps you get through it faster, okay? And by the way, when antidepressants were first introduced, that was the thought with antidepressants. We can shorten the time you're gonna be in this episode. Wow. But then, and you can even read that. You can read that at the NIMH. They go, listen, 85% of people, even hospitalized depression, will be better after a certain period of time. It will pass. So our whole thing is, can we help speed it up? But then go to the moment they call these diseases of the brain and they started uh, adopting this chemical imbalance story. Now that's a chronic conception. It didn't arise from scientific discoveries. It arose from a desire to reconceive these things. Well, once you conceive of it that way, they began treating it that way, okay? And the irony is that once people did stay on these drugs that perturb normal functioning, you do see an increase in chronicity. You see a, an increase in, um, say, even with you know, psychotic symptoms, you see that people are more likely to be uh, psychotic over the long term compared to those who, who, who end up off medication. With antidepressants, uh, there's increasing body of evidence that over the long term, they increase the likelihood that people will re remain symptomatic, have depressive symptoms. Uh, and that's just part of it. You also see, for example, with the use of antidepressants, you increase the risk that someone goes from unipolar depression to bipolar, and then they get on, on these uh, pharmaceutical cocktails. So depression, psychotic episodes, um, anxiety, all these things got reconceptualized as more chronic conditions. And the irony is with once you start treating that way, it turns out they tend to in fact follow that course. And the disability numbers is just like the, it's a marker of the harm being done. Now, many people of course don't end up on disability, but if you have effective treatments for a disease, you should expect that burden of a disease to go down in society, right? Right. But in 1987, we had 1.25 million adults on disability due to uh, psychiatric disorders. And that's the year that Prozac comes to market. And now, and then uh, with 23 years later, roughly, you had close to uh, 5 million people, like a fourfold increase. And you know what was really driving it? Was an increase in uh, disability due to mood disorders, bipolar and depression. Now, when I wrote Anatomy of an Epidemic, people said, oh, that's just because the United States is a horrible country and they have no safety net. So I was asked to, to appear before a work group in the UK, United Kingdom's parliament because they were seeing the same rise in disability due to mood disorders. So in, pre in preparation of that, I began looking at um, rising use of antidepressants in developed countries and, and correlating that with their rise in disability numbers. And in every country, it goes up in, in like step-like fashion. As people increase their use of these medications, you see an increase in disability. So uh, 
And, and, and you know, there's also been uh, studies of cohorts where they find that those who go on antidepressants, for example, there was a famous, a, a large study in the 1990s on this very question, and that people who went on antidepressants were seven times more likely to become disabled than those who didn't go on the medication. And is that, do you see this anywhere, this model of mental health is being exported? Even oh, yeah, it's being exported around America. the world. Yeah. Got exported to Europe, it got exported to South America, it got exported to uh, Australia, New Zealand, and increasingly they're trying to export it to like Asian countries, African countries. So, you know, from where I sit, you take, you take what we just talked about, you just described, and then you also have the advent of chronic pain syndrome yeah. starting in the 90s. And so I see a lot of people are getting disability for one or both of those things. Um, whereas, Prior to the 90s, pain was a symptom. Right. It was not its own. It was not a medically treatable diagnosis, right? Um, but there has to be also some, there, you know, I'm pushing back on you a little bit, I think. There has to be some correlation to uh, the contraction of the middle class, the crash of 2008, um, I expect it will be with COVID as well, that the disenfranchised, because they don't have other safety net alternatives, feel pushed to go down this road. Yeah, no question. No, 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 Pierce, you're right. And of course, under Clinton, we basically got rid of welfare, okay? Right. So, uh, and there's been, you know, a lot of people don't have health care. <laughs> If you go on disability, you generally can get health care through, you know, Medicaid or whatever, because you enter into a, you know, a category of poverty that allows you to get health care. There's no question that that helped fuel it. OK, no question. Uh, but that's why I think to see that it's still real is that it also is happening and happened in countries with good social, uh, you know, support nets. So for example, it happens in Sweden. I mean, the UK's has been, you know, falling apart, but it happened in New Zealand. New Zealand has a really lot of social support, but it happened in New Zealand as well. It happened in Australia. It happened in every country. I could chart both the disability numbers and the um, use of antidepressants. It happened in Iceland. Iceland, for example, has a great uh, safety net. So is it exacerbated in the United States by social conditions, the decline of the middle class? Absolutely. The, the sort of getting rid of welfare, absolutely. Disability became a landing spot for people cut off from other types of support. And so, for example, a lot of parents would, you know, once they lost the, the, the you know, basically the child welfare support, they would like to get their kids put diagnosed with ADHD and seen as disabled so they could get an, a, a, a payment through their child. Now, the problem was, of course, then they had to pimp out the child and the child had to go on these medications. But sure, there's all sorts of social factors that are driving these disability numbers. And as you said, chronic pain is one now. You see a lot of people claiming... Uh, back pain as as a way to get on 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 uh, social you know on disability so 
I mean, that is some of the most shocking part of your research that we have astronomical numbers of children on disability, ever increasing, I'm assuming. Well, you know, it seems to have leveled off some, but that's because they're putting the brakes on approving some, you know, they, they see this, this rising expenditure, right? So states can interpret, they can set up different sort of review processes for allowing people on disability. And as, uh, you know, these disability roles have swelled up, it becomes such an expense. And then now you see states and frankly, the federal government trying to uh, make it harder to get on disability. So, you know, I haven't seen the data for like the last four years, but I think it was like around 2017, it stopped this ever upward trend and it began to level off. Probably varies state to state, I would assume too. Oh, and it, it varies a lot state by state depending on, you know, how much they want to cut off, um, you know, it seems state, state funding. It seems like it runs parallel with the whole prison question. That some states were getting devastated by those costs, so they started doing some reform. Yeah. Okay, so um, larger question, a couple before we stop. One is, we seem to be um, acculturated into this idea that emotional problems are essentially individual they're not contextual, they're not relational. And it would seem to me that that's where a lot of pushback should happen. And I do see it in fields like anthropology, sociology. I do not see the question even come up in curriculums of psychology, human services, social work. Um, yeah, that's a great point, Pearson. You know, we got along with the rise of the, the disease model of psychological problems. We entered into a time of neoliberalism, right? We have Thatcher right. and Reagan going back to 1980. And neoliberalism, the whole point is to saying that the problems exist within the individual, right? And not within societal constructs, you know, whether it be have paying living wages, you know, supporting unions, et cetera. The problem was inside the individual. And, and the, the chemical imbalance thing really, you know, fed into this idea. Oh, the problem is in, in, in you, it's, it's in the kid, it's not in the schools. Are the schools boring or underfunded? Oh, or maybe just the way the schools are organized is a problem. Or maybe is it a problem that people are working two jobs to try to put food on their table? or they don't have security anymore, or they don't have access to healthcare, or they live in a society where the wealth is so incredibly unequally distributed and getting more so every, you know, every day, basically. So mental health arises, I, I'm quite sure, within social, within cultures, yeah. within larger conditions. And we know, for example, that just to be, the data is real clear on this. Cultures where the the wealth distribution isn't so great, they're happier cults. They're happier cultures, and and so um, if we really want to sort of as 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 a society rethink this, you have to rethink like how do you build a nurturing society that nurtures good physical health. 
that nurtures good emotional health, that nurtures relationships, that re, uh, nurtures a social interaction with each other, nurtures a sense of civic duty, a, a belonging to, you know, not to warring tribes, but, you know, to some, you know, unified country that we want to see prosper. So ultimately, you know, you see a dual failure, I think. You see a, a failure of the disease model as just like a, a disease story, right? It was a false story and it's failed in terms of uh, treating people individually. But it's not enough to just say, okay, let's reconceptualize what's going on inside the individual's head. You have to reconceptualize how do you as a society help people stay well? How do you build a nurturing society for your children, for your mothers, for your working people, and, and, and the whole gamut? And, and clearly what we've had over the first 40 years is a society devolved into places that's not very supportive of people. And by the way, addictions, I think, are uh, uh, reflective of that. Yes. That, that, that this sort of social unhappiness. And we've lost it a way to help people make a transition from childhood into adulthood. Mm -hmm. So I mean, addiction is just like, a, it's a marker for a society that has really fallen apart. Yeah, canary in the coal mine for sure. Absolutely. Um, given all of this and given that you have this broad bandwidth or exposure to other countries, is the face of activism on these issues look different in places in Western Europe than it does here? Are we really hamstrung here because, because of corporate personhood and money being speech and, and uh, corporations being people? Or is the activism comparable here to other places? Well, in some ways, I think the activism is, uh, is quite pronounced here. And I think that's, uh, there's several reasons for this. Whenever you have an extreme society, it's more likely to provoke a, a response. Mm -hmm. and so since we have had, had such a grotesque, an ever-growing unequal society, and a society where it's harder and harder to feed your family and, and that sort of thing. And schools are so unequal in quality and funding. Um, that provokes an activism, that's number one. Uh, second, I think, um, and there's quite a bit of reaction to our corporate environment as well for that. Mm -hmm. But two, what also happened here is the psychiatric expansion that occurred starting with uh, you know, Prozac, which was so great. We began to pathologize kids. That began to trap a lot of people who um, were quite skilled, came from upper class homes or, you know. Yeah, people. that's right. Okay. And even went to some of the best schools. And then all of a sudden they weren't flourishing. Okay. All of a sudden they weren't, their lives were going down the tubes. And then uh, they started going like, what happened to me? And they can see that when they went down the psychiatric path, their lives went to crap. And in a way, the fact that some of the people who are getting caught into the psychiatric system come from, you know, higher classes or better, you know, when we talk about fiscally better classes, that's also being a, a found, a fa leading to a fountain of activism as well. Because you do have 
people with other means in essence, other resources able to really devote themselves to it. And, and sometimes, uh, you know, they've had the educational skills to be um, good writers about this, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so like, take Sweden. Sweden, you almost see no activism. Really? Almost none. And the reason is, I think there's such a sort of still sense of social togetherness there, and they don't really want to challenge the prevailing wisdom. There isn't that streak of independence. Mm. So you don't see much activism there. Now, Norway, you do. But wow. Norway has a different political system that for the longest time uh, really sort of nurtured grassroots a power, it, grassroots power, even in the medical system. So for example, every hospital system has to have patients on their board or some sort of decision board. Wow. So the system itself has a way of supporting uh, dissent from conventional wisdom, even dissent against the medical system or challenges to that. So for example, the longest running psychiatric survivor group I know of comes from Norway. It's a group called We Shall Overcome and you can recognize the Right. The, the historical echoes of that name. And it was it was the user groups in, in Norway that, for example, forced the health ministry to order all hospital districts to start offering medication free treatments. So that was a grassroots movement. So <clears throat> by and large, I would say the psychiatric survivor movement, or just what if you want to call it the peer recovery movement, is more active in the United States than most anywhere else. Norway's sort of an exception. Wow, that, that is so interesting. I would have, I would have thought the opposite. Um, By I the way, one, one more thing, Piers. The opposite. Oh, yeah, you, I know I would, have, I would have thought the opposite too, but you know what another reason is? The civil rights movement in the United States. Because we had a civil rights movement, that really helped stir a, uh, a rights movement among ex-mental patients. People who've been in mental hospitals in the 70s, which really seeded the psychiatric survivor movement. So you add all those uh, factors up, more capitalism, more inequality, more pathologizing of kids in the history of the civil rights movement. It really seems to have bred, uh, you know, a, a pretty active psychiatric survivor movement in the United States. So there's gonna be a lot of people in this audience who would identify as psychiatric survivors and people in recovery. Um, many of them are like 12 step sponsors. And so they're trying to help people that are embedded in these systems. And in terms of, uh, do you have any advice in terms of organizing resources? Um, how to have psychiatric survivors? Psychiatric survivors, but those who are coming into this perhaps through the recovery thing? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, this website I run, Madden America, is meant to provide resources where you can research the drugs, you can research the merits of the diagnoses, you can read personal stories. Now, all of that can help you feel less isolated, less alone, more confident in, and you can feel validated. And more confident, I think, and even if you go, say, for example, you mentioned people who go to their provider and say, hey, I'd like to take, you know, I'd like to taper down. If they're told no, can't get support, if they've informed themselves of these resources and seen that they're not alone, I, I think that can help them 
be more confident in their decision-making and in their assertion of whatever they want to do. Because people should do, you know, they should be the author of their own lives. Yes. And they should decide whether they want to do this or not. So, for example, I'm not encouraging anyone to do anything. But other than maybe get informed, you know, try if, if you're questioning this, become informed. And then I think there is, secondly, a lot of wisdom in the peer community. In the what? In the peer community, in listening to people who've walked down these paths. So I, I think, you know, being able to gather with others that um, have had similar experiences can be very helpful. And then if, that's the second thing. Third thing I would say, do try to reconceptualize it for yourself and you don't see yourself as forever damaged. Yes. Uh, you know, see yourself as someone who struggled. You're, 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 you're a human being that exists in an environment. You grew up in an environment. To struggle is to be human. And you said about resilience, we don't, we're not the same people throughout our whole lives. We change. And there's a big, you know, humans can be so resilient. Yes. They can chart new paths in life. So cling to that as a, a form of hope, a form of truth, so to speak, that, that human beings do have resilience, they can make changes. So I, I think that's the information is, is think of yourself not as broken. Think of yourself as a human being who's suffered, who's struggled, has maybe made mistakes, but we can change our ways. And then if you can inform yourself about these things, reach out to other peers, maybe reach out to professionals who are, are willing to listen or are already sort of in this world of thinking about things differently. And I think if you wanna make a change, if a person wants to make a change, all of these factors help them put them on a path where they can start going in a different direction. So I have to do it. Um, the viewer that's saying, well, this is all well and good, but in my case, I'm taking the Depakote and I feel a lot better. What do we say to him? Great. <laughs> no, I'm serious a little bit here, Pierce. Uh, if someone says, listen, I'm, uh, my life is going well and, 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 and I, I find that this this drug helps me do that. That goes back to this thing of honoring the pers perspective of the person who's the individual. They are the authors of their own lives. And if they wanna continue taking the medications they find helpful, that's great. Yeah. At some point though, if they're, if, At some point, if they if 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 they change their mind, I know a lot of people who said for a time these were great, and then all of a sudden they stopped being great. Yeah, you know, there's a time then at that point uh, to help them find information, that sort of thing. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you want to be a source of information. You want to be a sense of encouragement. You want to help people see themselves as authors of their own lives, as able to change themselves. And then they can make their decision whether they think the medications are good for themselves. And, you know, and if they're, if they're helped, great. I honestly mean that. Because when we talk about the uh, drugs doing 
overall harm, that is in the aggregate. It doesn't mean everybody has the same reaction to the drugs. And it also means this. So let's go back to depression just real quickly. If the natural recovery rate where you're just asymptomatic a year later is 85%. Now let's say on drug, it's 50%. Yeah. Well, you got 50% of the people saying, oh, I think the drugs are helping me because they're not symptomatic. But still in the aggregate, you've done, you've done harm because the recovery rate went from 85% to 50%. But all I'm trying to say is that group that is in the category of, I, I find these very helpful. Okay, that's great. I, I honestly wish as long as we were using these drugs, everyone would find it that way. Sometimes, though, you know, you will ask people to say, oh, these are great. And then they'll say, well, but, you know, my sex life sucks. Right. And, you know, I'm not very energetic. And I, I find that I'm not as interested in things. And then maybe that's something to explore. Uh, any drawbacks, anything you see that maybe you'd like to change. Maybe that leads to a lower dose. I don't know. But I just want to emphasize the person is in control of their life. They're the ones making the decisions. Yeah. Um, we're at a point where you have things that are alternative modalities that are really well researched, especially by neuroscientists. You know, we're at a point where yoga is identified as being a complementary form of medicine, but we're not at a point where insurance will reimburse it for these things. I'm assuming that's in Norway, they are getting re reimbursed. No, there's a lot more reimbursement for yeah. there, these sort of social support programs. Is there any push towards that in the United States? Any activism? Yeah, I do think you see there is some activism, uh, grassroots activism, wanting these non-medical alternatives, uh, you know, supported by health insurance, um, yoga, uh, exercise clubs, uh, you know, there's a lot of different things. Yeah. You know, whatever the mindfulness practices might be. Right. What, what one wishes is this, that there really would be insurance. So insurance is for diseases, right? Mm -hmm. You should have insurance for promoting wellness. <laughs> Understand right. what I mean? Right. And that, 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 I think, is there's a tiny bit of that but not really. So it should, honestly, I think insurance should cover, why not cover yoga, exercise classes for people, uh, having someone come in and help you with your diet, uh, yeah. all these sort of things. So I think there is a bit of a push for that. And one of the reasons, of course, that there's a push for that is, you know, if you can promote wellness in a person, they're much less likely to use health services that are very expensive. Yeah. So wellness protocols can be very cost effective for insurance companies or providers, I should say. Um, but we have a long way to go, as you know, on this. I think that it's it, the activism is there, but it's long, long, long way to go. Well, Robert, you've been very informative and very generous with your time. Um, so maybe uh, if folks want to find you, madinamerica.com. Yeah, and if they want to write me, they can just go to contact and find my email there. Oh, right. I highly recommend it. It's a one-stop shopping resource, and it also will send you in other directions, too. Um, so it's, it's really a wonderful thing. And uh, with that, 
Thank you so, so very much. Cheers. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for joining us. For more information, you can find us at resistancerecovery.com.